The business of culture, the culture of business, policy, markets, media, creatives, music, cuisine. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. That's the funny thing. Uh, Cooking for Rick Ross, there's not a lot of set boundaries there. Hey, yo, bullfrog, six o'clock, eight people, make it sexy. And I'm like, what does that, what does that mean? Do you want, do you want steak tonight? Should we make shrimp? Uh, Do you feel like chicken? Make it sexy. And, uh, you know, always kept me on my toes. Miami is on fire, what with all that hedge fund money sluicing in, rent skyrocketing, and long derelict neighborhoods now globally renowned for aspirational dining. Chef Jeremiah, a fellow child of the 305, has been all over this scene, all while remaining scrappy, multi-platform, and true to his roots. Here with Chef Jeremiah Bullfrog's Great Leap Forward. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. Follow, subscribe, and rate us at linkfulldradio.com. We are on all the social media channels at handle Full D Radio. Joining me is Chef Jeremiah Bullfrog, Miami TV culinary personality, dad, everything. He's recognized from his stints on the Food Network, Chopped, Beat Bobby Flay, Cutthroat Chicken, CNBC's restaurant startup. He was the proprietor of Miami's first gourmet food truck. Who'd imagine back in 2009, the gastropod. And he has chefed for the celebrity likes of Rick Ross, various princes and actors. And he divides his time now between personal chef gigs, consulting, and being a a, a multimedia personality. Does that even begin to encompass your bio right now, sir? Well, I think most importantly, Robin, we're missing the fact that um, that we've played soccer together um, as youth. Yes, youth, the youth soccer league is very underrated, in my opinion. In the interest of full disclosure, uh, I knew Jeremy back in the day uh, as as kinder. We go back to kindergarten, and we played for the Dan Leslie Entertainers at the old Allen Park in North Miami. We just stood there in front of the goal line while. Coach Siegel let the other kids shoot. And, and you go off and do great things with your career, and I'm a ne'er-do-well. But that's neither here nor there. Tell me when the culinary itch, I mean, hit you. Uh, I, I can't recall back in junior high or high school. Uh, there are certain people, the late Chef Howie and others in our South Florida circles who went on to do great things in the restaurant business. I know Chef Allen. I know the people from Tap 42. But I never recall you going back kind of being a, a a star chef in the making. When did you get that inception moment? Yeah, so it's funny, Robin. You know, I've, I've always been um, a fat kid, right? Uh, fat kid mentality is we like to eat. Uh, we like to stuff things in our face. So therefore, I always thought in the back of my mind, you know, I might want to learn how to, how to cook these foods. I think when I was like seven, I made bagels. No direction, no... no um, no input from from adult supervision. I just made bagels. Um, I believe they were were fairly edible as well. But just growing up with a, an Italian grandmother, you know, we always burned our hands making things like gnocchi because the potatoes had to be hot. Because if they weren't hot, then uh, the dumplings would be 
like le- leaden bowls. I didn't know you grew up with an Italian grandmother. Like, so she would take you to Lorenzo's there on West Dixie. Where would you go and buy the stuff? So she didn't take me to Lorenzo's, although rest in peace, Lorenzo's. Um, I used to shop there quite a bit. Um, wow. Grandma Nonna, as she was known affectionately, would shop more wow. at um, at Mimi's and um, other Italian markets across the, the Dade border uh, line there. And so let me take it back 25 years. You're at Johnson and Wales Culinary School in North Miami. I believe that's the old North Miami General Hospital. Yeah, yeah. So rest in, rest in peace, uh, Johnson and Wales, uh, North Miami. Well, how did you pick culinaries? Take, take me back to this. So you knew coming out of, out of high school that you were not going to go the traditional, I mean, were you going to take a crack at college? Like, how does this even work? Yeah, so that's the thing. Um, you know, coming out of high school, I was always sort of like the class clown in high school. My whole thing was I didn't like going to school. I did very well once I was there. Uh, it just wasn't my thing. I didn't like, um, you know, the the structure, the regiment, the hours, that sort of thing didn't, didn't sort of jive with me. So as soon as I graduated, uh, I went directly into culinary school. And my, my mindset was sort of like, I have to do something. And I knew I loved to cook. And I just kind of just kept telling myself over and over, I'm just going to go to culinary school, just going to go to culinary school. Uh, that campus had just opened in North Miami, making it a easy, breezy decision for me. You know, Providence, Rhode Island in the winter was not so appealing. Um, so it, it worked out well for me. And as soon as I got into uh, Johnson Wells, I sort of just straightened right up. I fell into the discipline of the school that sort of regiment worked really, really well for me. And um, that's how I learned how to cook. Do you have to step up? I mean, getting into the nitty gritty, we've asked people like Chef Brittany Anderson and uh, others before, do you take on debt to go into culinary school? I mean, isn't that a tricky, tricky situation if you're going to try to become somebody's sous chef or working back in the kitchens and kind of grit your way up to have to take on a debt load to do this? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, from a financial standpoint, culinary school is not the route for most people. You know, I was just fortunate enough to have some assistance there. But, um, you know, it, it's ostensibly expensive to get a culinary education. You can get just the same education by, by working through in kitchens, absolutely. Um, I think that's more of a conversation that we're, we're learning to have now. You know, the late, great Anthony Bourdain was a, a big sort of proponent of, of going your own route, you know, maybe going to Europe and, and staging in kitchens in Europe, you know, toughing it out in some of the better kitchens that we have in the States. There's many different diverse ways of learning in the kitchen. I mean, the things he witnessed, too, going back to, you know, the, the legendary Kitchen Confidential with the drug-addicted, you know, baker and the various personalities and the scams that would be going on, but also the layers of genius. You have to be a really strong person to be kind of thrown into that chaos and, and to build an identity of your own. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we're all a bunch of misfits in the kitchen. There's definitely a reason why we all sort of hover uh, in the back you know, sometimes we're out of sight. There's good reason for that, you know. As I've sort of progressed in my, my career and I've learned to be an owner-operator, it sort of helped me sort of like transcend into the dining room as well. You have to be a bit of a personality. You're a babysitter. Uh, you know, you're, you're a first aid technician. You know, being a chef doesn't mean you're just cooking food. More times than not, you're uh, washing dishes, making sure the grease strap is unclogged. You know, there's a lot of unpretty, unsightly things. 
and uh, not to plug it, but if you haven't read Kitchen Confidential, that is one of the better insights into the uh, culinary world. Yeah, I just keep thinking about the addict baker, the the one guy who could come and slap the dough into shape and everything. Everybody with their foibles and flaws, and now he's clearly a a canonized, lionized figure, the late Anthony Bourdain. I got to ask you, because we're going to unpack a lot of this stuff. Go back to your mind in 1998, because that's when we were graduates from what we were doing. And I think about it because it was 25 years ago. And I, too, returned to Miami at the turn of the century. Did you have any indication that the place would explode the way it did right now? If I fast forward to 2023, it's now known as one of the most expensive cities in the hemisphere, if not the world. Rents are not keeping up with things. We have hedge fund managers and celebrities. You know, the people who live in, uh, what is it, Indian Creek Village, what, you know, Billionaire's Isle. It was actually a place where you would drive down Biscayne Boulevard back in the day and see a lot of dereliction. And now there are neighborhoods known as the Upper East Side and Wynwood. And, you know, they don't call things Little Haiti. They call it oh, Ironside. And I, I don't recognize my hometown anymore. And you effectively have placed many big bets on this hometown. I mean, you were there opening up this truck in 2009 when it was cored out from the the real estate and subprime collapse. Yeah, listen, Robin, I can give you a whole dissertation on the growth of Miami and all its ups and downs throughout the the decades. We could even tap in Billy Corbin, who knows better than I and, and has his fingers in the pie pretty well. You know, watching Miami grow has been, you know, one of the the proud sort of hometown feels for me. You know, what we started to do back in, say, 05, 06 was to make Miami sort of like a neighborhood, right? Miami is this large, encompassing city that stretches quite a bit. You say in your Miami, but, you know, you're actually in Hialeah or you're in Aventura. These are, these are far-stretching neighborhoods. You know, so me, for, for having traveled a bit around the world and being fortunate enough to see other cities and other communities uh, and other neighborhoods, that's what I knew I wanted to bring back to Miami. That was what was missing for me. Can I live here, work across the street, walk down the street to go to the bodega, you know, frequent an establishment every week because we know the bartender's name and he knows our order, you know, those are the kind of things that I felt were missing in Miami. There was a lot of flash. There was a lot of cash. There was a lot of rented Lamborghinis, still are, you know, driving around. <laughs> and and that just, that wasn't, you know, that, the that Hertz, was mine. The Hertz foreign Lamborghini edition. Correct. No, I Correct. know it. Yeah, you know. A Maserati's everywhere. Yeah, it, it was a South Beach thing. It was the glitz and the glam. There was a lot of Euro trash, you know, like. I was I was in the thick of it in the 90s, you know, with a fake ID sneaking into all the clubs in South Beach. It was super cool, but it was not a sustainable model by any means. If you look at it now in the growth and when you look at it from the outside, it's grown a hundred times, right? But for us, we're still doing our thing. We're still in our neighborhood. You know, now we have the neighborhood pizzeria. That's our thing. We want to feed people around the corner. Um, but we also want to feed those people who are driving you know, from 45 minutes away to, to join us to, to see what our neighborhood is. You know, it, it, that's always our thing. It's like we're by locals, for locals, and just setting that neighborhood vibe. I don't think people outside really truly understand how little of a kind of a pedestrian by local for local thing there was in Miami back in 98 and 99. But regardless, you went on your vision crest, which I understand included restaurant Aquavit in New York, El Bulli. Tell me about that and tell me about catapulting yourself after culinary school and and agreeing to kind of keep your head down and travel the world and how you financed that and 
how does a person even develop the audacity or the guts to kind of do that? Do you write a chef? Do you just show up? Do you, do you drink with them? I mean, how does that even work? Yeah, so um, the elbow thing, that's one of the earmarks on my resume. It could pretty much get me into almost any kitchen, and it did for, for many, many years. I think chefs hired me based on the fact that they just wanted to hear stories about El Bouilly in Spain, which was, if you sort of go back to like 98, 99, um, there was very little information coming out. Obviously, this is, you know, pre-social uh, media. You know, we got our news in print. But there were some articles coming out about people who made the journey to, to El Bouilly in Spain which is about two hours northeast of Barcelona. It was this house that was up a winding road off of a cliff that overlooked a beautiful uh, sort of cove on the water, closer to France than it is to any city in Spain. I had read this article about the chef there, Ferran Adria, making spaghetti that was clear, but it tasted like Parmesan cheese. And I said, you know what? Sign me up. This is what I want to do. Um, I always had the drive within me to work for the best so that I can learn from the best. And, and But Jeremy, you're Jared Chef, Jeremiah, how does that work? Do you send a cover letter, a resume? Do you show up? Do you get, uh, you know, do you get somebody that sets up a shidduck or vouchers for you? Okay, so El Bouilly, it was just dumb luck. I, I just sent an email and I said, hey, I, I'd like to come work. What do I have to do? And I got a poorly translated email back saying that they were full that season and then I should apply the next season. So 2000 rolls or 2001 rolls around. I send, um, I send another email. I said, Hey, I'd like to, you know, come. What do I have to do? And it's like I hit the lottery. I, I have that email printed out somewhere and it said, please come join us. They had the same amount of stagiaires or interns in their kitchen as they did diners. So it was 54 cooks in the kitchen not getting paid for 54 diners every night in the dining room. That's, that's So this a crazy is an reason. apprenticeship. You're not getting paid any pesos or euros or whatever they were going back with that back then. You were self-funding this? Correct. I was uh, living on a credit card that I maxed up. It was pesetas at the time. So Spain was fairly affordable. I, I could buy... A bottle of wine, a baguette before work for, I think it was equivalent to about $5 U.S. My rent was uh, $200 U.S. Wow. for, yeah, I had a couple of roommates. But, you know, like life in Europe was great. Working at uh, a Michelin three-star restaurant, not so much. It wasn't the, uh, the prettiest. Chef, what was your calling card coming out of culinary school when you write these people and they say, okay, if there's one thing you have to prepare for me on the fly, not that the world is Iron Chef by, by any stretch, but I look at your repertoire right now and I'm, you know I'm, I, I fanboy on this all over social media. You had the old Dirty Dog, which was a smoked short rib hot dog on a potato bun topped with spicy sweet slaw. Your famous Bon Mi Taco, which oxtail trotters, country pate, pickled radishes, the sloppy joe with brisket and curry in a hurry, which is vegan curry with rice. Um, you do pizza now. You do an egg and potato taco, charred yam, cavatelli. What was your imprimatur, your effectively your, your elevator pitch coming out of school? What were you known for in those North Miami circles? Uh, coming out of color school, I probably thought I could, you know, cook anything, but in reality, probably not. I was very fortunate to have a personal chef position in culinary school for a very prominent Miami lawyer 
who he sort of taught me um, through sort of inadvertent means. He would read uh, both the New York Times and the Miami Herald every day. He would circle recipes, leave them out on the counter. So I'd go to culinary school, learn these grandiose dishes and, and sort of like haute cuisine in school. I'd shop at Epicure and uh, buy the best ingredients. And then I would go cook in a very well-equipped kitchen. And that's how I learned how to cook. Sort of following. Would you other invite people. friends and other other contemporaries to sample this stuff? I mean, how do you do it in a safe but constructive, critical environment? I, I mean, I, I know this stuff must seem obvious to you, but it's not necessarily for our listeners. I wanna I wanna know how you build this from nothing. Well, I, again, I was fortunate to to have a job where I had to do it. I was sort of thrown into the fire. A lot of times yeah. in this industry, that's that's the way you learn. Is dinners at six? It's for four people. You better figure it out. And my boss was not the one to, to hold his tongue for anyone. If it wasn't good, I heard about it. And it just sort of, sort of shapes you, you know. Um, it's not as much carrot and stick in the kitchen world. It's trial by fire. You're on deadlines. The best way to learn how to cook, though, is, is learning other people's recipes. You know, you learn a recipe. And once you have it down where you don't need to reference the recipe, you've learned a dish. Now, say you take that same dish and you swap out a couple of ingredients that for whatever reason make sense to you or they weren't in season, they weren't available. That's how you learn how to cook. I mean, let's timestamp this at the turn of the century, the beginning of this, the first decade of the aughts. El Bouilly, WD-50, Noma, Restaurant Aquavit, which I remember was the first one I sampled uh, on 54th Street. was at Marcus Samuelson's on, on my first restaurant week in 2001. And then I don't know how you ever cross paths to become the personal chef to mega rapper and uh, media influencer and cultural tentpole Rick Ross. Yeah. How did that happen? Shouts to the boss, Rick Ross. We were doing a, uh, we're doing an album release party for Keisha Cole uh, back in the day. Rick Ross only had the one hit at the time. Every, every day I'm hustling. We were at this uh, CD release party. We were catering it, and Rick Ross was there in the kitchen just sort of hanging out, the glasses on, the chain, and he kept eating the hors d'oeuvres, and he was cracking us up, just, you know, cracking jokes and uh, extremely <laughs> personable. It was sort of like a Miami who's who of the hip-hop community. You know, it was like Fat Joe was hanging out, DJ Khaled was there, Rick Ross, and it was just a great time. And I remember him saying to me, let me get your number, when I call you, it's not because I want to go to the movies. So sort of his in a, inadvertent <laughs> way of saying, you know, we're not going to hang out, but, uh, but I like what you do. And sure enough, you know, it was maybe three weeks later I got the text and uh, that started the relationship. Whoa. What was the assignment? What was the order? So that's the funny thing. Uh, cooking for Rick Ross isn't – there's not a lot of set boundaries there. For example, I would uh, – Hey, yo, bullfrog. Six o'clock, eight people make it sexy, and I'm like, "What does that? What does that mean? Do you want? <laughs> do you want steak tonight? Should we make shrimp? Uh, do you feel like chicken? Make it sexy, and uh, you know, always kept me on my toes. Oh my gosh. I always brought enough food for about thirty people because you never know who's going to be there. And listen, the guy has impeccable taste. We watched the guy grow from just being uh, sort of like a one-hit wonder at the time to being a mega mogul, just absolute um, dynamite in, in his industry. Um, he's obviously the cultural icon. 
uh, lots of lessons learned from Rick Ross, the boss. How did you, uh, you know, we never we take for granted that you probably had the working capital and everything to hire staff to buy equipment. What do you do? Just show up at a, the Deering Estate or some mansion on Star Island and make it sexy for 30 people? Uh, it's always a, it's always a struggle. There's never there's never quote unquote working capital. Um, when you're a chef, when you're a caterer, when you own a food truck, you're always just scrapping it together, uh, parlaying credit cards, you know, to to stretch. You know, we've got to spend you know seven hundred dollars at Whole Foods, and we'll put it on this credit card. And you know, once we get paid for this, we'll pay off the staff. You know, it, it's a hustle. It's we won't call it a struggle. It's it's a hustle. Um, you know, coming up in the game, doing our own thing. It was always, you know, just make it work. That's always the uh, the mantra every day. Was there a point with which you realized kind of the business impulse kicks in? Like I'm actually making a living out of this passion, and I can scale this. Yeah, absolutely. I remember the light bulb moment that you know I had always worked for others, and it, it's never an easy thing. You know, pulling twelve, fifteen hour days. 80-hour weeks in, in other people's kitchens, working like a grunt, being treated like a lesser human. But uh, I had been doing sort of like my own thing. I was in between jobs in New York City at the time. I was surrounded by my peers, some of which you, you know from back in the day, who were starving actors or musicians. And, um, and I did this gig for, for a couple of my friends who had a show and it just sort of clicked to me. I was like, hey, I'm, I'm on to something here. Like I could feed people, make a little money. And it's also performance art, right? Like there's a chef there. They're, they're sort of enthralled by once you put a chef jacket on or, or now it's even an apron. And so it's part show and it's, it's part cooking. But in the end, whatever you serve, it needs to be great. And that's what leads you to your next gig. Tell me as much as you can about the Rick Ross thing, how that hubbing spoke into other gigs, because clearly if he's having 30 people over, they're not, they're oftentimes not no names. This is before Miami really hit the celebrity stratosphere. Was that all word of mouth? Was it all like, bring your best game? And then other people are like, give me your number. Suddenly, were you getting these calls and these orders from various characters who wanted to bring you in? Um, I, my time with the boss uh, was split with having our own food truck at the time. The, the food truck was sort of taking off. I was getting more recognition for the gastropod by flipping burgers than I ever did for working at El Bui or, or all these other fancy kitchens. Wow. Yeah. And, I, you know, it took me a while to sort of adjust my ego and say, shit, nobody likes my, uh, you know, cacavan that took 24 hours to make with great detail and precision and technique, but they sure love my burger um, that I serve for, for $8. So once I sort of course corrected and, and squashed the, the chef ego, it, it just became about feeding people and, and providing hospitality. You know, that, like that's what I do. That's what a chef does. That's my industry. We feed people. We provide sustenance. Uh, in my case, I like to make sure it's super delicious um, also nutritious these days. It's su super important. And then there's always an educational uh, proponent to it as well. Chef, it's interesting to hear you talk about a, a high-end, you know, a hote, uh, $8 Miami food truck hamburger. It's kind of like when you watch Back to the Future and Marty McFly skateboards past that old 1950s diner and coffee's five cents. Where in the world can you find an $8 burger in Miami right now? You can't, and that's a shame. Uh, well, and let's not say that because Shake Shack still, 
you know, it's maybe eight and some some chump change. But look at Shake Shack. Look at what they're doing. They know that high quality, high volume really is a uh, a solid business plan. Um, when uh, when we had started, there was only one Shake Shack in the park, right? It was the one Shake Shack. And having watched them grow, I had stood in that line in um, in the park on many occasion for that burger. I think everyone. Oh, in Madison's Madison Square Park. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like that was the start, right? The Little Shack. Right. And look what they did. You know, Shake Shack helped. You know, Eleven Madison get their stars and. Danny Meyer has been very vocal that how Shake Shack funded a lot of the the fine dining projects, and it just sort of to click in my head as a as a businessman as an entrepreneur uh, that listen people need food that is affordable that they can get quickly, and that's always going to be consistent. And so that was our our mo on the food truck, especially in Miami, right? Like you know, there's so many lesser, desirable, mediocre places to eat. There wasn't that many super consistent places that you can go to eat affordably. And so everything on our menu was less than 10 bucks, made from scratch with good ingredients, the best ingredients we can get. Full disclosure, we're talking to Chef Jeremiah Bullfrog. Do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and all fine podcatchers everywhere 24-7, including an especially Apple podcast. The link, please subscribe and rate us, is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. A shout out to our radio listeners on WVTF, Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. We are on WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, gorgeous mountain country, and out west on KPPQ in Ventura, California. Holler if you too would like us on your air. My DMs are always open. If you're just joining us, my guest is Chef Jeremiah Bullfrog. He is a veteran Miami culinary talent. Multiple TV appearances on the Food Network, including Chop, Beat Bobby Flay, Cutthroat Kitchen, CNBC's Restaurant Startup. I got to ask you, when did media enter this equation? Because, you know, who could have imagined, again, going back to 1998, you at Johnson & Wales Culinary School in North Miami, that we'd have Instagram, we'd have Snapchat, we'd be posting up videos on LinkedIn and oversharing, and everybody would be carrying around a powerful 1080 camcorder in the palm of their hands? Yeah, and certainly not me, Robin. You know, looking back at it, uh, it just it wasn't on the radar. You know, there was a, a couple of people doing the Food Network thing. You know, some well-respected, others not. But the Food Network, or the TV thing, sort of the impetus was from the food truck again. You know, all this attention for for cooking for cooking burgers. Essentially, I got uh, I got a casting call to go on Chopped was was the first one, and they said, "Hey, do you want to come do the show?" And that was sort of like my foot in the door uh, with the Food Network and and with food TV in general. So, I mean, this is, again, before Miami truly explodes. But what does exposure mean in the grand scheme of things? You probably have had uh, newspapers and online players come to you and say, you need to advertise, you need to market. What does it do for customer acquisition? I see that you're very good by word of mouth, celebrity word of mouth. You get covered by dint of kind of the audacity of some of your dishes, the crossover. But you market yourself. I mean, you're there on Instagram. I mean, what what is the exposure worth? So... You know the Food Network thing never worked for me. It was it was funny. Uh, we would go, I would go do these um, shows, which 
are a huge time suck. You know, you really need to commit 110%. And then we'd be driving around the food truck. We'd be in a different location almost every day and posting up on Twitter because that's how we did it. And uh, everyone would complain that they couldn't find us or, you know, you're not here in the same place. And, you know, for me, I was chasing the next gig. You know, we sort of had our routes for the food truck. We knew where we needed to be. But it's not like a you can't plan that far ahead with a food truck, right? It's today we're here, tomorrow we're there. Uh, Ask me where I am next week and we probably didn't know. So I was doing a lot of work, putting in the work on these shows and not really reaping the rewards. I think the the best sort of return on investment for us in the media was uh, the Miami Herald put us on the the front page of of the living section. That's where our little our little culinary articles came out once a week. I, I think it was like on a Wednesday. Front page of of the Herald living section. It's uh, me and the fam and the gastropod. And then the next day, our steady Thursday gig at Bayfront Park. There was a line out the wazoo. Uh, and then we were in the weeds the entire service. You talked about return on investment. I guess this real world kind of you know baptism by fire, going out there and figuring it out on your own. That was your MBA. Did you get any formal training in accounting or bookkeeping or any of the business chops? Did you sub you know delegate that to someone else? I mean, how does that even work? Uh, you know, being a chef, restaurateur, you learn it all, right? Uh, you have to be the accountant, bookkeeper, you know, keep keep books and lines, do sort of like P&Ls on the fly. You know, I was very fortunate to have a great base from, from Johnson & Wales. You know, we did, um, you know, what we call sort of like chef math. It's a huge part of what I do. Um, I am sort of like a numbers guy, so uh, for me to do admin still to this day, it's a huge part of what I do and making sure that we're in line and, and hitting our goals and um, make sure everything's in check. How about your own media? I think about the your own cooking travel show, which everybody would have thought cooking travel, but Bourdain really did revolutionize it for CNN. People laughed at CNN when they gave him that time. And I remember skeptically watching, I believe the first episode was in LA's Koreatown, where some of the most celebrated chefs took him to a sizzler, actually to discuss, you know, childhood rewards in the Korean American community. And it was really soulful. It was wonderfully done. He went to the high end, he went high market, low brow, and clearly next thing you know, he's having beers with President Obama in, in Vietnam. Tell me how your own show concepts launched. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, Anthony Dordain was a huge influence and uh you know, sort of that that icon that we all looked up to. So, you know, but the guy put in the work. You have to look back. He was on the Food Network. The Food Network thing didn't go that well. You know, was he the right fit? Absolutely not. Then he took it to right. Travel Channel, right? You know, he had many successful seasons on the Travel Channel. Then when you look at sort of what was going on with him at the time and TV in general, they were making him or asking him to do things that, that he wasn't comfortable with. And, and that's right. a huge part of what TV does, right? There's always a producer trying to get you to wear something, to say something, to do the walking scene. So for me, studying Bourdain, and, and that's what I ultimately did when I got my own shot at it, was... What did the guy do really well? And having met him on more than one occasion and, and just sort of being in his, you know, peripheral is Anthony Bourdain always spoke the way he wrote. 
He always wrote the way he spoke. He didn't change whether he was on TV or next to you in a bar or in front of Obama. That's who he was. He was true to himself and he always portrayed that. And it always just sort of resonated with me. And when I got my shot for the show that we shot for Complex Networks, I tried to do the same. You know, I had to do uh, an on the fly, an OTF for every city that we went to, sometimes numerous times a day to get a different background shot. And so I was constantly writing monologues for myself on my phone. We sort of came up with like a, a little rap about, you know, each city. Uh, sometimes I would sneak in lyrics from from a popular hip hop star from that city, you know, whether it was Oakland or, or Atlanta, and just sort of encompassing the culture into what we were doing and, and weaving in food. You know, food is, food is just like cuisine, the ultimate sort of cultural diving board. You know, you want to learn about a city, a, a, a place, a, a country, learn about their food. And, and through that is, is, is how you learn about the culture. What are some of the opportunities and as, as Miami has really scaled and grown coming out of the housing collapse in 2009? And, and people, it was apocalyptic. I wrote a Business Week story on how if you went out at the worst of the housing crisis and looked at the skyline in Miami, it looked bombed out at night. Most of these buildings were dark. The foreclosure rate was through the roof. And Argentines and various other people started coming in and picking at assets on you know, 40, 50 cents on the dollar. It was a, a particularly brave time to double down with your truck in 2009. Uh, was it though? You know, like a brave thing might have been to, to take out a giant loan and buy some property. And I'd be talking to you from a pretty chill mansion on the water in Miami right now. Um, you know, I wish you had uh, shot me a DM back in 2009 and say, hey, man, maybe you should look into buying some property. I never imagined anything like this. I never imagined the pandemic, which was a huge unlock, a huge reset. I mean, food trucks, contactless delivery. We didn't even get to everything else, all the problems with DoorDash and uh, Postmates and the like. The industry has gone through uh, depression, and now we're talking about a hospitality surge and Miami being the other borough of New York and getting various things from New York that are kind of unbelievable like h&h bagels is coming to miami i mean i can't recognize the place and for you to have kind of had that inception moment in 2009 to the present you must get many more offers than what you could possibly commit yourself to yeah i mean when the offers come in it's real easy to see uh it's easy to see them coming in miami you know it's usually an out-of-towner and they have grandiose ideas of of what they can do and what they want to do. And it's my job to sort of like weed through them and, you know, tell them they're full of it and it'll never work. You know, the the inflated real estate market in Miami, it's really a shame. But it's a blessing in disguise because guys like me are sort of finding these deals that we never would have. And definitely with the pandemic and the world sort of ending, you know, we we've sort of course corrected all the restaurants that weren't strong enough to survive did not. All of the hustlers who knew how to pivot, they survived and did really well. You know, I had a Detroit style pizza concept back in 2017 that I wrote exactly to the note of what it needed to, to do to succeed. You know, I, I had been doing a lot of consulting for successful food and beverage businesses. I knew exactly what a concept entailed from branding to recipes, to costing, to, to P&Ls, the whole nine yards. And I did that for this concept, thinking that 
someone might buy it off of me. And we had a location in 2017. It fell through pretty famously. It was a scumbag landlord who they're still trolling the streets of Miami to this day. And after losing that location, we sort of just put mm. the concept on the shelf. I went back to personal chefing. I sort of forgot about it. Uh, fast forward to 2020, the world ends. We dusted off that concept and we were selling pizza the first week into shutdowns all across the country. And, and we survived. You know, we were uh, popping up at friends' restaurants, building uh, an oven on a trailer, whatever we needed to do to sell pizza to food. There was just so much vacant capacity then that you could just show up anywhere. It was very turnkey. And you didn't have the commitments, the brick and mortar commitments and the significant overhead that you could be a lot more nimble than a lot of these other places that were taking enormous PPP loans just to keep the lights on. Exactly. I didn't have a payroll. You know, I wasn't paying ungodly amount of, of uh, liability insurance for, for a brick and mortar. So we were light. We were on our toes. We were very nimble. And just with some crafty marketing and, and just DIY guerrilla marketing is how we made our brand Square Pie City successful. But, you know, all of that, it doesn't work unless you have a great product. And I always preach this to, to people who want to get in the business or to people who want to talk to me about media. If the product isn't there, if you're not putting in the work, it shows. So for me and forever and always, it is about putting in the work every day, making sure what we're doing is great. I like to hyper-focus on singular items. Now it is pizza. You know, before it was burgers. In the past, it was fine dining. Now it's pizza. So I try to make the best pizza I absolutely can. And I think it shows. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle fulldradio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry full disclosure on your air. Square Pie is getting a tremendous amount of buzz. I mean, you talk about dat sauce, which is your proprietary marinara. There's also your red in the head, fire in the bed, a spicy pie that offers heat from Calabrian chilies and chili-infused oil. Your white pies include the all-white everything, topped with mozzarella, house-made ricotta, parmesan, and roasted garlic. And I'm quoting the New Times, the many magical mushrooms topped with caramelized cremini mushrooms, mozzarella, asiago garlic, and house-made porcini dust yeah i mean for a kid who's used to the best being you know steve's pizza in north miami it's mind-blowing it's miami's gone really hot and yet you make it accessible you make it affordable and there's something to be said about that it's still humane yeah i mean let's be honest should pizza be pretentious you know stop with the mayonnaise on the pizza it, it doesn't belong the only fruit that should be on pizza is tomatoes Having said that, what we do is we come up with our seven or eight signature pizzas. Uh, we're doing Detroit style, which is having a moment. A huge debt of gratitude for Pizza Hut for the for the multi-million dollar ad campaign, which ad campaign. now I don't have to explain to people as much what Detroit style pizza is, although a day doesn't go by when someone asks me. You know, what we do, it's just, it's really delicious pizza. You know, my folks were from Brooklyn. Uh, I spent a lot of time growing up eating a Nona slice or a Sicilian uh, or an upside down square, whatever you want to call it. 
But for us, it is just about making really good pizza. You know, it doesn't matter what the style is, quote unquote. For us, it was how do we make a lot of this, right? High quality, high volume, but at the same time, keeping it somewhat affordable. In the measure of things, our pizza is expensive when compared to other pizzas. But to get a good quality meal that is made from good ingredients um, and that you could feel good about when you're done eating it, I think it's, it's still affordable for family. Chef Jeremiah Bullfrog, uh, what do you have in the way of staff overhead right now? We like to keep it super trim. You know, I found through the years of, of going through other people's businesses and, and being in the industry for so long, labor cost is a killer. Um, we like to keep it uh, from 16 to 19% of our total um, costs. But we do know that labor costs shot up. I don't think that the effective minimum wage there means anything anymore. It seems like 20 is the new 15, which was the old 10. And people, uh, there's always a question we ask in a through line that a lot of food truck operators and restaurant operators with the payment system being so tablet centric right now, what do tips mean to you? And this has become a huge controversy with tipflation or the expectation to tip on everything. Right. So uh, it's, it's a dicey area. Um, a lot of businesses are including a service charge. And on top of the service charge, they're asking for gratuity. For us personally, we like to pay. We've been we've implemented the $15 minimum wage in our in our kitchen since the food truck days. Um, I, for us, it's very important to make sure that everyone has a living wage. Um, whether you're a dishwasher, you're a line cook, a prep cook, whatever it is, we feel very wholeheartedly that everyone deserves to, to, to make a living and to somewhat live comfortably. So it's been a huge proponent for us. Um, as an entrepreneur, as, as a businessman, as a chef, we like to keep overtime to a minimum. And then tip pooling, you know, just chopping it up and sharing it uh, amongst the employees is, is always the route that we go. How do you build some sort of ownership culture among the employees for them to not kind of, you talk about the culture and you talked about not loving being treated like a grunt in your peripatetic days at the turn of the century and wanting to go off and do something on your own. But if other people, big, you know, Northeastern operations are showing up and offering $25 plus, if you could show up at other places and there's a notoriously high turnover rate in food service, how do you keep people happy? How do you make them feel like owners, not just cogs in the wheel? For us personally, we like to treat everyone really well. Uh, I like to have a workplace that you want to go to. You know, a lot of us spend more time in the restaurant or at work than we do in our own homes. So it's important that people have somewhat level of comfort, uh, you know, whether it's a couch in the back room that people can sit down during their break. We've always offered a family meal um, we offer discounts on or, or just straight up freebies on, on our food in-house. Um, and then it's training. Training is, is the biggest thing and it's what's missing in our industry um, right now is you really need to make sure people know what they're doing from soup to nuts and, and know why they're doing it, right? The why is usually more important than the how. Um, I can show people how I do it, but I don't expect them to do it the same way. You know, 
there's more than uh, one way to dice an onion, as I believe that that saying goes, right? Listen, if your technique is different than mine, but your end result is the same, that's what I'm looking for. I don't need to micromanage my people and say, you know, your Brunois isn't that great. Uh, leave that to to the French chefs from from days of yore. Um, I, I just don't like to 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 um, harp on on the the little nitty gritty negative aspects of the kitchen. I like the broad strokes and and make sure that we're all doing what we need to do at any given time. And for what it's worth, I have to quote uh, this article in Quartz this week. I posted it on Twitter. The world's most expensive cities in 2023. Singapore takes the top spot while Dubai, Jakarta, New York, and Miami see the biggest cost increases. With a 22% spike, Miami saw the largest increase in living costs over the past year, climbing from 18th last year to now number 10 globally. I I guess that's a mixed blessing for you because you have pricing power, not that you just want to rip people off, but clearly wheat costs more, flour, the attention to detail that you have with, you know, raising the dough over 24, 48 hours, quality ingredients, milk, dairy, labor we discussed. How do you even get your head around inflation and Miami's particularly high inflation? Yeah, um, but let's make sure that uh, we do note that our dough is 72 hours. Thank you very much. Uh, highly digestible Italian flour. Yeah, listen, Robin, it, it's crazy in Miami right now. Um, but the way I look at it, it literally is a bubble, right? The bubble's going to burst. Um, be patient. Wait for it. We tried not to raise our prices that much due to inflation. I think our bag of flour raised about three bucks per bag per 25 kilos, which when you do the math, you know, it hurts the margins, but we sort of just ate it. You know, we said, listen, it's not going to be forever. Um, You know, let's just do a small bump here and and sort of just get through this time. I I wholeheartedly believe that we're in a bubble in Miami. It's going to burst. Half of New York moved down during the pandemic. The first summer when they were experiencing 95 degrees with 10,000% humidity, you know, a quarter of them left. Um, <laughs> it, everyone thinks Miami's, you know, this great place and they get the t-shirt, I'm in Miami B. And, uh, you know, they think the culture is is about the flash. But once you're in it and you figure it out that uh, August, September, even most of October are extremely slow months business-wise – there's just nothing going on. You know, South Beach is dead. Find a new neighborhood. Wynwood is this, don't even get me started on Wynwood, what they've done to it. So for locals, you know, we find our way. We, we get to the new neighborhood. We try to get in before uh, the developers ruin it for everybody else. And uh, we'd like to just set roots in and, and, and hold fast. And, and that's what it's about. You know, the rent increase in particular has really hurt many aspects of Miami. I can speak from the hospitality industry and that's people have nowhere to live. It's crazy. Uh, if a one bedroom is going for 2,500 bucks and you're getting paid $15 an hour, do the math. Where's everyone supposed to live? Like in Homestead, you know, two and a half hours away uh, without traffic. So it's a dicey situation. It is getting better. I think it will continue to get better. And, um, you know, that bubble, the bubble's going to burst. Are you placing chips nationally? I mean, you are doing this interview, after all, from New York. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Robin. 
Uh, one of my favorite things to do is make pizza for New Yorkers. Um, second, Chicago. If you come from a, a great pizza city where there's multiple options, that's who I want to feed. Sometimes feeding pe- pizza to people in Miami who grew up in Miami, there's less, less of a reference point to what we're doing. Uh, they might just say, holy, holy shnikes, that's an amazing pizza. But when a New Yorker comes to me and says, and comes back the next day, it says, I need that pie. I've been thinking about that pie. I've been obsessing about that pizza pie. Like, I know I've done my job because in New York, you know, you throw a dart and you're going to hit one of the best pizzas in the world uh, in, yeah. in almost any given location. So we sort of tested the waters. We were popping up. Uh, we popped up in Nashville. We popped up in Orlando. We popped up in Chicago. You know, we sort of bounced around to the markets that we feel that that we can hit and, and sort of make an impact. I have my favorite culinary cities. For me, one of my goals is is to take it back to Detroit. You know, for us to um, go make Detroit-style pizza in, the, in Detroit, right? Like, that would be a huge win for us. I'm a huge fan of what's happening in Detroit now, the grassroots movement. You know, it just sort of speaks to what I do and, and what we do as, a, as an establishment. Chef Jeremiah of Bullfrog, we have to get you to Richmond. I know we have a mutual friend and fan in uh, both Joe Sparata and Lee Gregory, the, who've, who've done live shows with me. Their restaurants are very highly regarded, and Lee is expanding into this pandemic. You got to come up here and uh, you know take your skills from South Beach, if you will. Absolutely. I think uh, I got to hit up Joe. We should set up a Square Pie City pop-up with Joe. Lee is is killing it. It's great to see those guys. I've had wonderful meals at Heritage uh, in Richmond. I love Richmond and and um, and, and sort of like the new vibe. Uh, for me, the telltale is when those those indie coffee shops start popping up and they get the culture. Uh, that's how I know I'm in a place that that's going to have some great food and you know all encompassing good culture. And and Richmond is definitely uh, a super dope little spot that's that's blossoming. Uh, Chef Jeremiah Bullfrog, internationally known and known to rock a microphone. Uh, he's been on Food Network, Chop, Beat Bobby Flay, Cutthroat Kitchen. He's cooked for mega client Rick Ross. Square Pie is getting all sorts of press. Sir, I cannot wait to see you in Richmond and definitely come back on the show. Absolutely. Shout out to Full D Radio. Get your full disclosure on NPR. I appreciate you, Robin. <laughs> uh, if you haven't already, pick up uh, Robin's book. Uh, let's talk about Miami in the 80s. Just wonderful things. I appreciate you having me on and can't wait to break bread with you in Richmond as well. Can't wait. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, sir. Full disclosure, if you're listening on the radio, note that while we often have to cut for broadcast time, the entirety of every interview is available on podcast. Wherever you catch your pods, at NPR, Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts, the link is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. Special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly, Radio IQ NPR, WPVM, and KPPQ. Message me if you too would like to carry full disclosure on your air. We are on all social media channels at handle Full D Radio. And stay tuned for a roster of big live events at the University of Richmond. And catch me every week on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week. Next week.